out. Blog Talk Radio. So, I told him I fixed it. You, you did fix it. It's not the way that I thought you would. But that's okay. I'm fixed. You, much more effective than I would have been probably today. So, and yes, so, hey, we got, so we got Patrick, we got Alex, glad that you're all here with us, and, uh, yeah, so, yes, Rocky Mountain High, we are heading up to Colorado for... Well, something right for family for me. Yeah, yeah, so, um, we've, um, I mean, you spent, probably, yeah, you spent a little more time out there than I have. Yeah, my mom was born in Colorado, my sister uh, lived in Colorado for quite a while, and got married out there. Um, after she moved, my mom was still there for a while, so we visited quite a bit out there. So, yeah, I'm very familiar with the Denver uh, up to Longmont Corridor and then down to the uh, Pikes Peak area corridor. Yeah, we spent a little time down Colorado Springs yeah. and up in Estes, yeah. So, but, yeah, what we haven't done, we have not stayed at the infamous family hotel. Which is on the bucket list. Yes, it's on the bucket list. It's on the bucket list. Uh, but it's not in tonight's episode. No, because we already covered it. We already covered it. We covered that in one of the Haunted Hotel episodes. Yeah. So if you're looking for information for spooky stuff on the Stanley Hotel, tonight's not tonight. See <laughs> previous episode of the uh, Haunted Hotel. We've done two volumes of Haunted Hotels, right? We have. So I don't remember which one it was on. It's in one of them. Yeah. But if you go look us up on YouTube, you will find right in the uh, the episode description, I actually have listed exactly what we talked about in each episode. So find those Haunted Hotel episodes on YouTube, and you can figure out exactly which one is which. Yeah. So Chris and I were actually at a um, convention this weekend or conference yeah. for um, uh, independently operated and owned um, ghost tours uh, down in Orlando. So our hosting uh, rapper who owns um, American, uh, American Ghost, ghost Adventures. So. Yeah, this, these are actually the cups you get when you go off of a pub crawl. Yep. But, yeah, they're, they look like the little cups, but they're much, much more heavy-duty. Yeah, they're heavy actually duty. insulated. They're, they're <laughs> insulated. So, yeah, they're, uh, they're, they're classy, classy solo cups with uh, their company logo on yeah. there. So you are not going to crush them if you grip too hard. Yeah. <laughs> but, um, so, yeah, so we done, had, a, had a great weekend down there. And, uh, some ideas. Got some ideas. We're going to try to implement. Yeah, yeah. So we got, we got some homework cut out for us. You know, we're, we're not busy enough as it is. But that's okay. But the idea is up our game. Which yeah, are some I, things that we've been talking about that's like, okay, we need to pull it on the trigger and actually yeah. do this. <laughs> so, and let me see. So. And we were there with um, people from. There was um, Black Cat Tours Black in. Black Cat Tours. Uh, 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 Canton, Ohio. Canton, Ohio, yep. Uh, we had Memphis there. Um, Savannah. Savannah was there. Um, Chattanooga yep. was there. Um, there. There was another Tennessee one there over by Appalachia. I forget what. Yeah, but there was there was, there a, was quite a few of us there. Quite a few of us there, and uh, yeah, had some uh, had some really good time uh, comparing ideas, which uh, again we're going to be working on, and hopefully uh, um, making Haunts of Richmond, uh, you know. Just as good, and you know, taking it up a level, taking it up a little bit of a level. So we might have some news on stuff like that in the uh, the weeks and months ahead. But um, let me see. Since the last episode, did we also have Hanover or Tavern? Hanover Tavern? Um, I can't remember. 
We did do Hammer Tower Terracon, um, which went very well on Birthday Bash, um, which Patrick was there first. Yes. That. Yep. So that was uh, that was a fantastic weekend all around yeah. between uh, two uh, historic locations that we love very much. So good times there. Yep. And we had a great tour uh, last night. And yeah, that's yeah. right. Because <laughs> because a week ago today we were at uh, um, the Dominion Energy Center. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's yeah. why we didn't have a. Yeah, that's why we because didn't have we were watching RL Sun at this point. Yes, yeah. we were we were listening to. Uh, yeah, I'm sorry, yeah, your usual Fantastic authors chatting it up last week. So gosh, we we have had so much going on. I don't even know what day it is anymore. It is Monday. Yeah. I mean, if we generally speaking won't be here for one Monday. It's the last Monday of the month. I know that. Yes, we've <laughs> only uh, we've only done one or two episodes off Monday, so it's Monday. So, all right, well, let's go ahead and get started. But yeah, yeah, so again, Haunted Colorado, tra um, um, tromping, up, uh, tromping out west for, uh, to go ahead and cover some spooky stuff from another state. And, and Chris may be reading more than normal tonight. I do have a sinus infection I'm getting over, um, so it's just my voice keeps going in now. <laughs> yeah. So, but anyways, from the Great Plains to the dizzying heights of the Rocky Mountains, Colorado is a beautiful state full of adventures to be had. Daring individuals have tested themselves against the extremes of this state for generations, and not all have walked away unscathed. Many have never walked away at all, and it's some of their spirited tales that we have to share with you tonight. Now, we are going to start right in the heart of Denver, just a few blocks from the Colorado State Capitol, and here we find the Molly Brown House Museum. Now, the origins of this beautiful home date back to the late 1800s, an era when a few lucky uh, individuals made millions by mining the mountains, expanding railroads, or trading commodities on the frontier. Many of these newly wealthy individuals moved to the prestigious Capitol Hill neighborhood, including Isaac and Mary Large, who made their fortune in silver mining and built the house at 1340 Pennsylvania Avenue. The home contained all the modern technology of the day, including electricity, indoor plumbing, heat, and telephone. Quite cutting edge for the late 1800s. Now, shortly after its completion, the largest became victims of the silver market crash. They sold their home to James Joseph and uh, Margaret Brown in 1894. Now, James Joseph, also known as JJ, Margaret, also known as Molly. Now, over the next 30 years, the Browns made changes to the house, including the front porch, back porch, roof, and a third floor. Quite a bit of renovating. It's a big house. Yeah. I've been here, actually. Yeah. Now, in 1898, JJ transferred the title of the house into Molly's name. When Molly was traveling, she would often rent the house to wealthy families. In 1902, while the Browns worked on a world trip, the home became the governor's mansion. Uh, for a short time, so there's a link to our next show with that. Set. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, but um, yeah, we just kind of speaks to the stature of the house. Now Molly continued renting until the declining neighborhood and the Great Depression forced her to turn the home into a boarding house under the supervision of her housekeeper, Ella Grable. Now upon Molly's death in 1932, at the height of the Great Depression, the house was sold. Subsequent owners altered the house dramatically, creating 12 separate spaces for boarders. Later, the house was leased to the city for use as the Jane Addams Hall Home for Girls. As urban renewal started encroaching on the historic home, a group of concerned citizens formed Historic Denver in December of 1970 with the idea of saving the Molly Brown House from demolition. 
So what is so special about the Molly Brown house, aside from the fact that it is beautiful and ornate, you know, large and ornate and just landmark home, does the name Molly Brown ring a bell for you? Or perhaps maybe if I put it in the phrase, the unsinkable Molly Brown? Molly Brown was on the Titanic. Yes. And her actions helped save numerous people on that fateful night. She helped people board the lifeboats before being persuaded to abandon ship herself. She then looked at an oar and urged the quartermaster in charge of her lifeboat to go back to the debris field to find more victims. And when I say looked at an oar, she threatened him with an oar um, to go back and find more victims. And after being rescued, Molly organized the other first-class passengers and providing relief to the second and third-class survivors from the ship. In the aftermath of the Titanic disaster, Molly used her newfound fame to promote causes she felt strongly about, including workers and women's rights, children's literacy, and historic preservation. Her legacy was immortalized in numerous depictions, but none more well-known than the 1960 Broadway musical, The Unsinkable Molly Brown. As for Historic Denver, their media appeals and fundraising efforts allowed them to purchase the home and begin restoration. So careful, uh, through careful study and hard work, the Molly Brown House was restored to its original Victorian splendor. With so much care being shown to the beautiful home and get, uh, given the ferocious spirit of the woman who lived there, it's a little surprise that a few spirits may linger around the museum today. Staff of the museum have noted that Molly and JJ, as well as other family members, can be seen roaming the house. Other fan, uh, staff and visitors have reported feeling inexplicable cold spots that seem to traverse the building. The aromas of tobacco are often prevalent throughout the now smoke-free museum. These odors are attributed to JJ and his love for smoking pipes and cigars. As a visitor, when you enter the house, you might be tempted to look into one of the beautiful mirrors on the first floor. And if you do, you may be rewarded by uh, uh, the spirit of the butler appearing behind you, peering back, through, back at you through the mirror. They described him as having a somewhat dour look on his face. Perhaps he was not a fan of the home always having new tenants. Other spirits include the apparition of a woman named uh, Duck Joanna who flits about the upstairs bedrooms. Another woman in a Victorian era dress seems to enjoy rearranging the dining room furniture. Molly's daughter, Catherine Ellen, is believed to haunt her own room, raising and lowering the blinds. Museum workers and tour guides also report other strange things that happen. Doors open and close on their own. Light bulbs inexplicably loosen in their sockets, making it necessary for the museum staff to check them and fix them as needed. That said, the generally friendly nature of the resident spirits and the pleasure of working in such a beautiful historic home make the spooky activity tolerable for most of the staff. For the haunted history lover, a visit to the Molly Brown House should be on your short list of places to visit when in the Mile High City. Absolutely, though. Been there. Want to go back. Because <laughs> they were actually getting ready to do some renovations when I was there. So. Oh. <laughs> a hot minute. A hot minute. All right, so now, if you're looking for a place to stay while you're in Denver, we're going to talk about the Brown Palace Hotel. Uh, now, of course, despite coming from the same era as J.J. and Molly, this hotel is the creation of Henry Cord Brown. Opened in uh, excuse me, 1892, the Brown Palace Hotel has been setting the standard for the luxurious accommodations in Denver for over a century. While this historic hotel has never once 
closed its doors, it still offers plenty of amenities for the modern traveler. It is also said to play host to several spirits of eras gone by. Henry originally left his Ohio home in 1860, planning on striking it rich in California. However, as his family passed through Denver, his wife liked it so much that she reportedly said to him, Mr. Brown, thou may press on to California, if such be thy wish. I shall remain here. As you might expect, the lady had spoken, and Denver became home to Brown. The family soon homesteaded 160 acres on what would later become Capitol Hill. A shrewd businessman, Brown developed an acreage into the most influential neighborhood in the city, where the wealthy began to build the palatial brownstone mansions up and down Grant and Sherman Street. Henry made a fortune from his real estate development. However, the economic panic of 1877 nearly destroyed him. He was forced to sell his palatial estate to Horace Tabor for $50,000. However, the enterprising Brown soon recovered his fortune, and by 1880, he was worth nearly $5 million, making him one of the wealthiest men in Colorado. When the Windsor Hotel, one of Denver's most elegant at the time, would not let Brown enter because he was dressed in cowboy attire, Brown decided he was going to build his own hotel and, in the process, outdo the Windsor. And in 1888, he retained the architect Frank E. Edbrook to design a new hotel, the likes of which had never been seen before in Denver. An unprecedented $1.6 million was the cost of the luxury hotel. It was built in the Italian Renaissance style on a triangular lot at the intersection of 17th and Broadway. The exterior was built with Colorado's red granite and Arizona sandstone, with 26 hand-carved stone medallions depicting native Rocky Mountains. And inside, the hotel featured the nation's first atrium lobby, with balconies rising eight floors above the ground. White onyx and marble were imported for the lobby, the grand salon, and the eighth-floor ballroom. Some $400,000 was spent on fine furnishings that graced the hotel. On August 12, 1892, the hotel opened, and all of the socialites of Denver, who were stunned by the iron grill work panels, the volume of onyx and marble, the stained glass ceiling atop the eight-story atrium, and fine furnishings plus numerous amenities. What are we doing, sir? We're sitting on your brother. <laughs> Serving only the best, the Brown Palace initially provided meat, vegetables, and cream from its own farms. It generated its own electricity and had its own incineration system for garbage, and its own artesian well to provide water. During the hotel's early days, a tunnel connected the Brown Palace with the Navarre building across the street, a gambling den and brothel. Over the years, Fabulous Hotel had seen hundreds of celebrity guests, from presidents to rock stars. It also has a wealth of stories ranging from prohibition rates to the birth of the Denver Broncos to the contingent of spirited residents. One legend is that of a Denver socialite with Louise Crawford Hill, who once lived in room 904 from 1940 till 1955. Her ghost is known to call the switchboard when the room is vacant, and only static can be heard on the other end. Later, when the hotel began to offer tours, the story of her life and heartbreak over a lost lung told the visitors. Strangely, the Swiss board suddenly began to receive calls from room 904, but this was impossible, 
as at the time the room was undergoing renovations, it had no furnishings, lights, carpets, or telephone lines. Before long, the story was eliminated from the tour and the telephone calls from the room stopped coming. The main hotel's dining room, called the Ellington today, was once known as the San Marco Room, where big bands played and later the San Marco Strings entertained the guests. One night after an employee heard strange sounds coming from the room, he walked in to find a formally dressed string quartet practicing their music. Then, he said to the musician, you're not supposed to be in here, only to hear their nonchalant reply, oh, don't worry about us, we live here. Another employee encountered the apparition of a man dressed in an old-fashioned train conductor's uniform, appearing just for a moment, and then he disappeared through the wall. The spirit was seen at the current location of the airline ticket office, which once housed the railroad ticket office. Other reports include the frequent sighting of a uniform waiter who is seen in the service elevator, cheerful, cheerful children who are known to gallop in the hallway, and babies' cries often heard in the broiler room. That's just not right. Yeah, nope. Today, the surrounding modern skyscrapers may dwarf the Brown Palace Hotel. Its reputation, however, is no less grand than it was over a century ago. I know we're warbrooking our room. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Any comments? I know you're tagging ferociously. Uh, no questions, per se. Okay. But, yeah. And, yeah, if you, if you can't quite tell, Vincent actually is on the best He's on camera. I can tell he's on camera, but he does blend right into your... You can see him right there. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, one of the boys is here. Nico got restless. Nico's in a mood. Nico's in a major mood. And, oh. Yuna and Lulu are having a trouble. Yeah. Oh, yes, that's Yuna and Lulu. Okay. Lulu's chasing her Lulu is chasing Yuna for some reason. And Yuna is feeling very harassed. <sighs> oh, Yuna, Yuna. Anyway, yes. So we are going to go ahead and make a foray out of Denver. We're going to uh, move west into the mountains where we find the tiny cities of Black Hawk and Central City. Founded as mining settlements during the Pikes Peak Gold Rush, the cities are a fraction of their former size, but they thrive today with the presence of modern casinos that started to populate the area about 30 years ago. Amidst the conflicting architecture of the historic sites in the modern casinos are residents that never left, namely those that reside in the local cemeteries. Central City Masonic Cemetery lies between Central City and Black Hawk, and it has been a mysterious and creepy tale, of, and it has a mysterious and creepy tale of a woman in a black dress that has piqued the attention of paranormal enthusiasts for years. The lady in black has long appeared at Central City Masonic Cemetery as she visits the grave of John Edward Cameron, who died at the age of 21 on November 1, 1912. Details about Cameron have been lost to time, and his relationship to the lady in black is a mystery that will likely never be solved. She appears on April 5th and November 1st to place flowers in a flower pot in front of his grave. In fact, a group of paranormal investigators set up in the cemetery one October 31st night to see if the stories were true, and they were not disappointed. The woman in black appeared in the graveyard and set her flowers on the grave, but two of the investigators tried to grab the ghost, but her apparition flew from the cemetery towards the woods, vanishing into thin air. That's rude. 
Yeah, it is. You don't try to grab the ghost. No. Apparently, the manifestation of the spirit was so corporal, the ghost hunters suspected it was a person actually pranking them. So, yeah, still rude. Rude. <laughs> now, in addition to the lady in black, strange sounds emanate from the cemetery. Orbs seen with the naked eye float among the gravestones. There are sightings of a young boy who is said to follow visitors around, but will run and hide if anyone tries to approach him. No matter their origin, the spirits and specters of the Central City Masonic Cemetery will certainly continue to attract curiosity seekers and paranormal enthusiasts for many years to come. Now, moving south along the eastern face of the Rockies, we'll find Cannon City. Now, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that quite right, but this is because this is one of the very few American cities that has the N with the, uh, the Spanish uh, um, accent on it. Uh, so I'm not sure exactly what that accent does to the N, but it is D-A-N with the accent, O-N. So I'm going to say Cannon City, and if I'm mispronouncing that, I sincerely apologize. But it's here where the Arkansas River drops out of the Royal Gorge amidst the mountain peaks. Another product of the gold rush, Cannon City sprung to life as prospectors flocked westward in the late 1850s. In the wake of the gold rush, the St. Cloud Hotel popped up in the town of Silver Cliff in 1879. Come 1890, the hotel was taken apart and reconstructed in the heart of Cannon City. A guest to the St. Cloud would first be greeted by the cozy lobby where guests would gather around the fireplace that kept the antique chairs and couches warm in the chilly winter months. There was also a grand piano situated in the lobby for guests to play and enjoy. The hotel served as a combination hotel and apartment house. The rooms on the fourth floor had been converted into apartments, while the bottom three floors remained hotel rooms. There were 35 units, which provided, single, uh, provided a variety of single room and suite accommodations. Individual and antique artwork decorates the hotel room walls. Each room comes with a private bath and wooden vanity. The honeymoon suite is connected to the hotel's veranda, which overlooks Cannon City's Main Street. The oldest operating elevator in Colorado takes guests from floor to floor. The hotel featured a dining room, coffee house, and lounge all available for guests to use. The dining room can be transformed into a banquet hall for weddings and community gatherings. As the years passed, the St. Cloud Hotel would see some complicated and dark chapters. Might be putting it mildly. I'll elaborate. While serving guests and tenants, the hotel would sometimes host other businesses. In the 1920s, the north wing of the hotel served as the state headquarters of the Ku Klux Klan. Mm. Yeah, exactly. And in the 1930s, the Rambler print shop operated out of the hotel printing a notorious Ku Klux Klan newspaper. On a brighter note, the hotel sometimes served as a headquarters for filmmakers operating in the area, and famous actors including Burt Lancaster, Slim Pickens, and Charles Bronson were hosted at the hotel during this era. The hotel's main dining room would also draw in many banquets, including the Cannon High School prom. Despite the best efforts of the hotel owners, this years did not treat St. Cloud Hotel kindly. Guests and revenues dwindled and the hotel closed in 2007. Despite its closure, it quickly became a target of preservationists due to its status as one of the oldest hotels still standing in all of Colorado. One group that is likely very grateful for the efforts of the preservationists is the cadre of spirits that call the building home. 
Previous employees and guests alike will tell you about the spirits that roam the halls and the unexplained phenomena that occurs within the hotel's walls. The television in room 209 has a reputation for turning itself on and off, and the spirit of a little girl is believed to wander the hotel in search of her mother, who stayed there after the little girl's death. There's also a boy playing in the hallway with a ball, though you'll be hard-pressed to try and play with a spectral lad. Other ghosts like to play tricks on both visitors and staff members. Chairs will be found stacked inside rooms that weren't occupied, and objects will be mysteriously hidden away in nonsensical places. Recently, the legacy of the St. Cloud Hotel has brightened. A new ownership team has stepped in to bring the building back to its historic grandeur, this time as the Hotel St. Cloud. Yes, they did just shuffle the words around, but it is kind of classy, right? Aside from the name change, the hotel, restaurant, and bar are actively being revitalized with what promises to be a bright future ahead. Certainly hope so. It's a gorgeous building. It is a gorgeous building. So have to uh, see if we can swing by there next time we're out Colorado way. Well, there does seem to need to be a hockey trip and maybe a football, so definitely hockey. <laughs> mm, yes. Although we wouldn't be able to get up to Stanley Park necessarily in the winter. Um, Stanley Hotel? Yeah. Ah, uh, this is decisions. Sounds like it's two trips. Okay, done. Yeah. Moving on. All right. We're going to talk back over to Denver. Um, she's in park because I had to include a park, something that's not necessarily a building. Uh, so this is at the heart of Denver in the Capitol Hill District. It's an 80-acre park full of beautiful trees that are perfect for taking in the gorgeous afternoon at the foot of the Rockies. This park is a favorite place for the locals and, of course, for tourists to, look, to visit. But what many of them don't realize is they're, of course, taking in the beautiful weather, but they're on top grade, those that were buried there in the 19th century. What they also may not know is there's a good chance they're taking in the signs and the sounds of the modern park with a number of restless spirits from generations gone by. The park's history begins in 1858 when General William Lamar, uh, Lamara jumped uh, at the claim of the St. Charles Town Company and established his own town, which of course he called Denver. And actually, the property didn't belong to the town company either. Uh, rather, the land legally belonged to the Arapaho Indians. In November of 1858, Lamar set aside 320 acres for a cemetery, which is now the present-day site of Houston and Congress Park. Lamar uh, called it Mount Prospect Cemetery, and several large plots were designed on the crest of the hill for the exclusive use of the city's wealthy and most influential citizens. The outermost edge of the cemetery were reserved for criminals and paupers, and the middle class were to be insured somewhere in between. The first man buried in the cemetery was named Abraham Kay, who died after being suddenly stricken with a lung infection. He was buried on March 20th of 1859. However, the most often uh, story told is that the first person buried here was actually a man hanged for murder, making it a far, far more interesting tale because it's also become the most preferred version. Now, the second man buried at the cemetery was a Hungarian immigrant named uh, John Stofel. Uh, having arrived in Denver to allegedly settle a dispute with his brother-in-law, he ended up shooting the man on April 7, 1859. Both men were gold prospectors, and witnesses believe that Stofel was really there because he wanted his brother-in-law's gold dust. Because the nearest official court was in Leavenworth, Kansas, a people's court was assembled, where Stofel was convicted of murder. 
and on April 9th of 1859, he was hanged from a cottonwood tree at the intersection of 10th and Cherry's Creek Streets. Though Denver consisted only of 150 buildings at the time, about 1,000 spectators attended the Stofield hanging after the body, along with his brother's body, were dumped in the same grave at the edge of the cemetery. That's an interesting afterlife. Yeah. <laughs> at the outermost edge of the cemetery began to fill with outlaws, vagrants, and paupers. Denver citizens began to follow the cemetery to the old boneyard and boot hill. Mount Prospect gained yet another nickname for a popular professional gambler named Jack O'Neill was gunned down outside of the saloon in March of 1860. The whole event began when O'Neill, a handsome Irishman, quarreled with a less than credible man who went by the name of Brooker. As the argument progressed, O'Neill suggested the two settle the argument with Bowie knives in the back room. However, Rooker refused. O'Neill questioned his heritage as well as several of his uh, family members. A couple of days later, Rooker shot O'Neill as he passed by the door of the Western Saloon. When Rocky Mountain News printed the story, the cemetery also became known as Jack O'Neill's Ranch. After receiving those many, many nicknames, the cemetery never gained the respect that Laramie attended or had. The influential citizens of Denver society were most often buried elsewhere, leaving the graveyard to the burials of the poor, the criminal, and the diseased. When he eventually left Denver, Mount Prospect was claimed by a cabinet maker named John Whaley, who also just happened to be an inspiring undertaker. A report in 1866 stated that 626 persons were buried in the cemetery. Whaley did an extremely bad job of keeping up the cemetery, which soon fell into such a terrible uh, state of disrepair as headstones were toppled, graves were vandalized, and sometimes even cattle were allowed to graze upon the land. In 1881, a hospital for those suffering from smallpox was established just south of the Jewish cemetery. The hospital was often referred to as a pest house, where uh, was where smallpox victims were quarantined, along with others having contagious diseases. Some were merely sick, elderly, or handicapped. Most patients were simply left at the pest house to die. Behind the building was the Potter's Field section of the graveyard where the vast majority of the dead were buried in mass graves. In the late 1880s, the cemetery was seldom used and had fallen into even worse disrepair if that was even possible. It became a terrible eyesore in what has once be, uh, become one of the most prestigious parts of the Virginia city. Real estate developers soon began to lobby for a park rather than an unused cemetery. Before long, Colorado Senator uh, Teller persuaded the U.S. Congress to allow the old graveyard to become converted into a park. On uh, January 25th of 1890, the Congress authorized the city to vacate Mount Prospect in recognition and Teller immediately renamed the area of Congress Park. Families were then given 90 days to remove the remains of their departed or to other locations. Those who could afford to began to transfer the bodies to other cemeteries throughout the city. Due to the many graves in the Roman Catholic section, Mayor Bay sold that 40-acre section to the Archdiocese, which named it Mount Calvary Cemetery. The Chinese section of the graveyard was placed in the hands of a large population of Chinese who lived in Denver, and those, those bodies were removed and shipped to their homeland. However, most of those buried in the cemetery, the aforementioned vagrants, criminals, and paupers, well, when so many bodies are unclaimed, the city of Denver awarded a contract to undertaker E.P. McGovern to remove the names that remained in 1893. 
McGovern was provided a box for each body to transfer to the Riverside Cemetery at a cost of $1.90 each. The gruesome work begins on March 14th of 1893 before an audience of curious seekers, reporters, and a few others. Now, for the first few days, the transfer was orderly. However, the unscrupulous McGovern soon found a way to make an even larger prospect off the contract. Realizing that utilizing full-size coffins for adults and child-sized caskets uh, that were just one foot by three and a half feet long. Packing the bodies up, McGovern sometimes used as many as three caskets for one body. In their haste, body parts and bones were literally strewn everywhere, and in disorganizing mess, souvenir hunters began to loot the open coffins and graves. When the Dover Republican got a hold of the story, its headlines proclaimed on March 19th, the work of ghouls. An article uh, described in detail McGovern's practice of hacking up what were sometimes intact remains of the dead and stuffing them into undersized boxes. The article, in part, describes the scene as follows. The line of desecrated graves on the southern boundary of the cemetery sickened and horrified everybody by the appearance they presented. Around their edges were piled broken coffins, rent and tattered shrouds, and fragments of clothing that had been torn from the dead bodies. All were trampled into the ground by the footsteps of the grave diggers like rejected junk. The health commissioner immediately began an investigation into the matter, and as a result, Mayor Rogers terminated the contract. Afterward, the city built a temporary wooden fence around the cemetery, leaving it in shambles with open holes still displayed. The numerous graves had not yet been reached, and others that exposed a new contract for moving the bodies was never awarded. In 1894, grading and leveling began in preparation for the park, and though several of the open graves wouldn't be filled in until 1902, when shrubs were planted in many of them. The park was finally completed in 1907, without ever having moved the rest of the body. Two years later, in 1909, Gladys Cheeseman Evans and her mother, Mrs. Walter S. Cheeseman, donated a marble pavilion in memory of Deborah pioneer Walter Cheeseman. The donation was conditional that the park, uh, part of the park be designed as Cheeseman Park, and so it was. The pavilion continues to stand today, provides guests with a wide view of the landscape surrounding Denver. That said, this whole business of the graves in the area not quite finished yet. In 1923, the bodies from the Hebrew burial ground were removed to other sites, and the cemetery returned to the city where the site currently serves as the site of a reservoir. In 1950, the Catholic Church moved the remains of those who turned it back to cemetery and closed the land back to the city, which is now where the botanical gardens are located. Today, an estimated 2,000 bodies remain buried in the It's a lot of bodies. It is. It comes as no surprise that, of course, the spirits of those forgotten, looted, and sometimes desecrated come back to make their presence known, and not only at Chisholm Park, but in the neighborhood that surrounds it. Almost immediately, when bodies began to be removed from the cemetery in 1893, strange things started to happen. One of the first reports was that when a grave digger named Jim Astor fell, uh, felt a ghost land upon its shoulders. Uh, Astor, who had been looting the graves as he moved the bodies, immediately ran from the graveyard, failed to return to work the next day. Those living in the residence surrounding the graveyard began to report sad, excuse-looking spirits knocking on their doors and windows, as well as the sounds of moaning coming from the still yet open graves. 
Today, these restless spirits are said to occupy the park as dozens of tales continue to be told of paranormal activities taking place. Most of us years will tell a feeling of unexplicable sadness or dread in a place that it is today meant for pleasure and relaxation. But other reports are more specific, some also including the sounds of hundreds of whispering voices, moans that continue to come from fields where open graves once laid. Children have been seen playing in the park during the night uh, before they mysteriously disappear. A woman is said to be seen singing to herself before she, too, suddenly vanishes. On some moonlit nights, outlines of the old graves can still allegedly be seen. Others have also complained after lying in grass, they found it difficult to get up, as if unseen forces are restraining them. More tales of strange shadows and misty figures seem to wander through the park in confusion. And then there's the story of Slutshaw. Now, this was reported by a man named Lee Cook. Lee worked in a couple of blocks away from the park and lived in an apartment adjacent in an adjacent neighborhood. He recalled this story to a local publication back in 2005. I live and work only blocks from the infamous Cheeseman Park in Denver, Colorado, and I've heard stories of its haunted nature but never thought much of it lately. But then, one night, my friend Robin and I decided to take a walk through the park. We walked across the south lawn to the pavilion where there were several skateboarders making jumps on the side of the old fountain and other people walking about. And we talked about work and other mundane things as we strolled away from the old pavilion to the rose garden where there is a natural maze of huge rose bushes. Then I heard a rattling chain come from behind us and said, Reuben, can you hear that? As I looked around and he replied, he hadn't heard anything. There, I heard it again, he explained. As, I heard the, as he heard the drinkling. Still, Reuben didn't hear it, and we could see no one. Continuing our stroll, we moved towards the middle of the big field, where it was more open and sat down on the cool grass to smoke a cigarette. Moments later, we were surprised. Whew. You're all right, sir. <laughs> when we saw a kid riding a bicycle with a chain dangling from his pocket. Turning circles around the thin tail man, Dressed in what appeared to be a shredded hospital gown, covered with blood, and the pair moved towards us. Okay. Sorry. Una, baby girl, thank you for the... um... Okay. So, we're about to off. Turning circles around a thin, pale man dressed in what appeared to be a shredded hospital gown covered with blood, the pair moved towards us. To say the least, we were petrified. As we grew closer, I could see that the pale man's jaw was broken. He then approached us and asked for a smoke. As I handed him a cigarette, he said, did you see them? Dumbfounded, I simply replied, who? The ones who did this to me. They stabbed me 15 times, the man said. He then lifted his sleeves to show us what looked like very deep stab wounds in his arms, back, and chest. Horrified, I asked, shouldn't you be in the hospital? Shaking his head, he answered, they let me go because I didn't have any money. He then warned us to watch out for them and stated several times, I'm going to get them. When I reassured him that if we thought them, we would let him know, the pair casually moved away from us into the darkness. Oh, okay. Got it. All right. 
When we could see them no longer, Ruben and I quickly ran towards my apartment as fast as we could, never looking back. Afterward, we talked about what we saw for a long time, both confident that what we had seen and talked to the walking dead. So if you ever go out to Chessman Park at night, know that you might just be questioned by a ghost in a hospital gown who continues to look for his killers. I have dubbed this ghost Blackjaw. Yeah. Yeah. Oops. Sorry. Notification on the other phone. (laughs) (sighs) Moving on. We're going to go someplace else. (laughs) Someplace uh, where it's synonymous with luxury in skiing. Uh, Of course, we are talking about Aspen, Colorado. And it's here that we find the opulent Hotel Jerome. The hotel was built in 1889 by other than Jerome B. Wheeler, former co-owner of Macy's Department Store. By the time it was up and running, Hotel Jerome was one of the first buildings in Colorado to feature full electric lighting. In the early 1900s, Aspen saw a decline in tourist traffic, leaving the Hotel Jerome to serve other purposes. It was even used as a morgue at one point. But when skiing revived Aspen's tourism after World War II, the hotel went through another boom, bringing celebrity guests to its popular J-Bar. It's said that prominent personalities often stayed in the hotel, and some of them were John Wayne, Hunter S. Thompson, and Gary Cooper. In 1985, a group of investors purchased the renovated hotel, purchased and renovated the hotel, excuse me, restoring it to its original appearance. Oh, and, and its history and halls are also coincidentally full of ghosts. Now, often described as the second most haunted hotel in Colorado, after... Stanley. The Stanley Hotel, mm-hmm. of course. The Hotel Jerome has quite a few resident ghosts. Jerome B. Wheeler himself is sometimes seen wandering about the lobby. Of course, there are some guests from the hotel's earliest days who simply refuse to leave as well. Amongst them is believed to be Henry O'Callister, who was a silver prospector that traveled to Aspen in 1889. After striking it big in the mines, he checked into the Hotel Jerome where he met Clarissa Wellington, the daughter of a wealthy Boston family. The two fell in love, but Wellington's parents weren't so pleased with the match. When she was sent back to Boston, O'Callister was devastated. Local historians claim he spent his remaining fortune on booze and died a lonely and broken man. Hotel guests and staff today have claimed to hear the pain sobs of a man and have even seen the ghostly figure of O'Callister walking the halls at night, eternally heartbroken. There are other not-so-happy imprints on the hotel as well. If you check into room 310 at Aspen's Hotel Jerome, it may leave you rethinking your holiday plans. Guests have reported seeing a little boy in a towel, wet and shivering in his room. That is until the child disappears before their eyes, leaving a trail of wet footprints in his wake. The water boy, as they've dubbed him, is supposedly the ghost of a 10-year-old boy who drowned in the hotel pool in 1936. Hotel staff have been so rattled by his appearance, along with other unusual experiences on the third floor, that some simply refuse to work there. One or more ghosts like to help the hotel staff by turning down the beds. And then there is also the story of Katie Carrington, a 16-year-old maid who was employed at the Hotel Jerome in 1892. A beautiful girl, Carrington received much attention from the wealthy hotel guests, and as a result, wasn't exactly the favorite of her co-workers. They teased her daily, and one night told her that they had taken her kitten and thrown it into the ice-cold pond behind the hotel. 
I don't like these ladies. No. They're not friends. Horrified, Carrington ran out after her beloved pet, jumped into the pond, and caught pneumonia. She died three days later. Hotel staff claim now that Carrington is a trickster. She strips the beds, uh, strips the sheets from newly made beds, fills the sinks with soapy water, and moves cleaning tools about. For now, Hotel Jerome has embraced its ghostly guests, and no room seems to be off limits. So if you like your skiing vacation with a side of spirits, the Hotel Jerome may be right for you. You want to read the last one, or is it you want me to? I think I'll let you. Okay, not a problem. Everybody doesn't like to choose. Yeah, I know. Yeah, very rude. Sounds like the ghost of Henry Wilson, the capital's ghostly bather. Ah, I yeah, didn't get that story from you uh, from from you there. So we'll have to uh, catch up on that one. Yeah. I'm not familiar with that one. I am not familiar with that one. We'll we'll hit you we'll up. We'll have to chat later. We'll chat later. <laughs> <laughs> now, uh, one final stop of the evening. And for this, we are going to go to uh, uh, northeast of Colorado Springs. And it's here that we find a small and picturesque area that feels like stepping into a quaint and wooded mountain town. However, this area has long been plagued by dark legends that have kept its residents fearful of what may linger in their midst. This place is appropriately and ominously named Black Forest. Now, Black Forest is an unincorporated community of just over 15,000 people situated on rolling hills marked by dense sands of ponderosa pines. A perfect setting for almost any horror movie, but in 1991, the price became all too real for a couple who purchased what they thought would be their secluded dream home. Excuse the background white noise, but the furnace kicked on. Keep forgetting to just turn that. I digress. Anyway, now Steve and Beth Lee had finally scraped enough to get uh, scraped enough money together to buy a home that they had been renting for an extended time. It seems as though something malevolent has may have been watching them though as they signed the contracts to make the home officially their home. Before the ink had even dried, the family began to experience something short of a living hell. The couple would hear an unholy racket while trying to sleep, including rattling chains, loud orchestra music stomping feet, and more. The unbearable stench of a chemical-like fume also began to flow throughout the home. And then there were the inexplicable flashing lights. After installing an expensive state-of-the-art security system and draining the family's bank account to hire private investigators to no avail, the family reached out to a paranormal team to see if they could determine the cause of these spooky occurrences. Upon arriving to the home, the team of researchers, mediums, and investigative techs poured over the house from top to bottom and came to the conclusion that the leaves were, in fact, not alone in the house that they considered their own. The team concluded that there were actually multiple spirits in the house, but one of them stood out amongst the others. If a group of ghosts could have a ringleader, this one certainly did. The presence of a man who considered himself the rightful owner of the home was the one orchestrating the bulk of the frightful activity. As the team recorded their investigation, several weird things happened, including the capture of inexplicable orbs and shadows on film, a camera being violently knocked off its tripod in strange thumping noises. On an even more terrifying note, 
Bethany and one of the members of the investigative team were attacked by a spirit in such a way that they were left violently crying on the ground while complaining of numbness and the feeling of not being in control of their own extremities. Beth and the team member eventually recovered, and the team left with data that they had collected along with many questions. In the months ahead, the team continued to study Lee's case, and a half year later, they returned to Lee's home with what they believed were some answers. With the help of a new psychic, the team determined that one of the spirits in the home was that of Howard, the son of one of the Lee's family friends who had died years prior. The psychic determined that Howard may have returned in an attempt to tell his still-living father that he didn't die of a drug overdose, but rather was actually murdered. Howard was able to do this via a vortex that seemed to lie in the Lee's home, a vortex that likely had welcomed many other spirits as well, some of them with less savory motives. Despite everything that was presented to them, the Lees were still skeptical of the vortex theory. Steve was more inclined to think that some experiments at a nearby government facility were the source of the problems. Break up the ten hat. It's not aliens. Yeah, it's aliens. It's not the aliens, but it's the aliens. Regardless of the cause, the relentless activity eventually led Steve and Beth to put the house up for sale. They walked away from their dream that had become an insufferable nightmare. I would not move into any place called Black Forest anyway. I mean, it looks like a beautiful community. I, I checked out some pictures. So, you know, yeah, it's, the it's only thing that's good is Black Forest cake. Ooh, Black Forest cake. But we don't have any Black Forest cake. No, Why did you bring a Black Forest cake? Because that's the only thing that's good about the term Black Forest. Now I want Black Forest cake. So you're going to have to settle for Andy's Oreo cheesecake, or Andy's cinnamon cheesecake. Which I will make this week. Oh, it's not even available right now. No, it's not. Because I made cranberry sauce for the sandwiches. Okay. Got it. Anyways. Oh, so. Oh. <laughs> uh, uh, there have to be aliens in when <laughs> we're doing that. Ten hats are fun for other cases. <laughs> but I guess when we do the next Aliens episode, we need to wear tin hats, huh, Patrick? You can wear a tin hat. <clears throat> I'm not putting on a tin hat. Put a tin hat on him. Oh, that'll go over well. I'm sure it would. He's already been moved to him. Just now? Laying here? Because I moved him. <laughs> because I had to move my legs, I moved him, and he bit me because that was not cool. <laughs> oh, boy. But... Oh. Yeah, so cheers, everybody. Cheers. Thanks for uh, coming out and joining us on another beautiful. Uh, or a little uh, wearing tin hats would be hilarious. I know. I got to draw the line somewhere. <laughs> got to draw the line somewhere. I actually, you know, funny story, completely off topic. Um, so I didn't realize just how much some people have come to rely on my hat. I learned this weekend when some of these folks that we met in person for the first time at the Ghost Tour, Professional Ghost Tour Conference, um, I started the whole day, you know, went to breakfast and had some more initial meetings. I was wearing the hat. But then we were going out to dinner that night, and I decided to not wear the hat. Mind you, I also 
was not wearing my glasses all day, too. So I ditched the hat, put the glasses on. He had a Clark Kent thing going on. Apparently, I had Clark Kent thing going on because we had basically we had rented out an entire house uh, for we won't get into those details too much, but rented out an entire house. Everybody has their own room. I went to go into our room um, without a hat and glasses on, and the people that have been hanging out with all day up to that point that were in the room next door went to stop me thinking that there was some stranger trying to get into our room because I had put glasses on and had ditched the hat. So... Now I know what I need to do if I'm ever going to be a superhero. I need to wear the hat all the time, ditch the glasses, and then when it's time for alternate ego to come out, ditch the hat and put on the glasses, and I'm good to go. Nobody, nobody's going to know. Nobody's going to know. Unless they watch this episode. We have six people watching. <laughs> anyway. Who I trust. I trust you all. And yes, I'm going to go ahead and I'm going to post this on the internet for posterity. And there's possibly that hundreds that, you know, I can dream about hundreds, if not thousands, of people watching this episode down the line, and maybe somebody will figure it out. But yeah. yeah. Anyway, so um, <laughs> next few episodes, we're going to talk about haunted executive mansions. Um, yeah, I went down a North Dakota rabbit hole research and then completely veered left. Uh, so next two episodes our executive mansions because, of course, next month is President's month, and I figure that's a good time for some executive mansion ghost stories, and then we'll come back to the States in March. So, Alice had a little news that she decided to share with everybody. Her and Paul are extinct. <gasps> Congratulations! Yay! Next, the tiny little paranormal investigator is expected on April Fool's Day. Nice. Yes, but congratulations. Very, very happy for you. That is fantastic news. <laughs> and actually, we've already talked about the White House in our Haunted President episode that we did. Was that last year or the year before? I was featured in the President's episode. So I think that was 2021. Yeah, and uh, we we have Christopher here telling us that we have to talk about the White House. Nope. Going to talk about some other ones, though. We have mentioned the White House before. Hey, well, we did. Uh, did we even do that? Was that in the haunted Washington, D.C.? It might have, yeah, because we had more stories. And we also yeah. covered um, a couple other places. I'm going to have to go back and search through some of our episodes to highlight and make sure I mention at the kicking off the episode Stuff that we're not going to be talking about because we have talked about it in the past. Yeah. I'm 99% sure the White House has been covered. Twice. Been yeah. covered twice. Yeah. So, yeah, we got we got some stuff going on there. Um, but, yeah, I, these are uh, – a couple of them are active executive mansions. A couple of them are retired executive mansions. So, that have been turned into museums. Yeah. So, yeah, a whole lot of stuff to work with there. And I have part three already started. So, I should say our, our executive mansions apparently retain a lot of energy. Yes. I mean, you think about all the, them. you know, the, all the emotion that winds up rolling through there. But, uh, oh, hi, Wendy. You hi. Think, Wendy West, thanks for uh, checking in. We're, we are doing well. We're, we're tired, but we're yeah. well. Been keeping busy. 
So, um, but yeah, so we got, um, yeah, we got that for the next two episodes. That's basically going to take up the month of yeah. February. And then we've got North Dakota and Nevada. You're already coming. You're already planned out into March. I am. So, I yeah. don't have April planned yet, but I have May planned. <laughs> Ah, yes, yeah, we'll get there. Yeah. We're getting way ahead of ourselves. Yeah, it's more like, okay, which which folder do I now stand upon yeah. with the next in April? Yeah. So. But, yeah, so we've got a, a lot of stuff going on, a lot of irons in the fire, um, and that's just down here. We're just talking about our the, the Facebook Live and the upcoming episodes. We've got a whole bunch of other stuff. We came home from Orlando with a ton of ideas for, for future stuff for the uh, real world Haunts of Richmond, so we, we're going to be keeping busy. And, yeah. uh, well, of course, we'll be announcing things as we actually oh, yeah. finalize them. It's, it's way too much to get into right now, So, but we're very excited about what the future holds, and yeah. uh, we're uh, happy to have you all along for the ride. <laughs> so we will see you again next um, six, that's all right, two weeks. weeks. Right. Oh, wait, no. So we're, we're back to back again. Oh, okay. I have some editing to do. Yes, you do. Yeah, so we'll see you again on the 6th and then on the 20th. I need to even get the 6th done. I need to get that posted. Yes. I need to actually get it up online. So I guess what you're doing as soon as we check out. I got stuff to do. I have homework. I always have homework. All right, so we will catch you all later. I'm going to let you yep. close out because I so have an yeah. So, all right, everybody. Um, feel free to keep on going in the chat. I will catch up with you all, uh, you know, interact a little bit more in the chat after we sign off here. And as always, feel free to shoot us a note anytime. Happy to hear from you all. Yeah. So with that, we will bid you all adieu. Have a good night, everybody. Yeah.